On this episode, I'm in the room with H.B. Charles Jr. talking about the process of preaching. Welcome to In the Room, episode number 16. I'm Ryan Hughley, and I'm the founding and lead pastor of Redemption Bible Church just outside Chicago. You can find me online at ryanhughley.com and also on Twitter and Instagram at, at @ryanhughley. That's H-U-G-U-L-E-Y. If you're new to the podcast, my goal is simple. I want to bring you in the room for conversations with pastors, authors, and artists. You get to listen in on what I hope will be helpful conversations with a diverse group of people. And today I'm in the room with H.B. Charles Jr., He's the pastor of Shiloh Church in Jacksonville, Florida, and the author of numerous books, including It Happens After Prayer and On Preaching. But today is all about preaching. In our conversation, we discuss sermon preparation, the mistakes young preachers make, how to deal with criticism, and a number of other issues related to the task of preaching. Even if you're not a preacher, I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. So get settled and come on in the room for my chat with H.B. Charles Jr., well, HB, thanks so much for being uh, in the room. I really appreciate you being here. Thank you for having me. It's a joy to be with you. I got to. I want to start here, man. So I was reading your bio on your blog, and I saw that HB is not short for anything. Your 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 grandfather named your dad HB, and he named you H. So that's just like that's on your birth certificate. So my birth certificate, driver's license, and passport. My daddy did it to me, and I did it to my son. I think that's an awesome tradition to hand down to your kids. <laughs> yeah, it is. So what do you, do you have any idea what the motivation behind it was originally? So the story I heard from my father is that my father ran away as a boy. Okay. And um, he was raised by another family, but he had only been called HB. Okay. So he does not know if it stood for something or not. It is the only thing he ever went by. His guess is that it did. Um, but he doesn't know what it is. Doesn't know what it is. All right. That's interesting. It, it is. So where are you from originally? Where were you born? I am from this very strange country called Los Angeles, California. Oh, yeah. <laughs> born and raised there. Spent the first 35 years of my life in the uh, city and okay. in the same church. So your dad was a pastor and you were uh, obviously then raised in a Christian home. When did you actually come to faith? I professed faith as a little boy at six years old. Um, I was baptized when I was 11. Okay. And it was around that time I began to sense a call to preach as well. All right. So I was reading uh, on your blog that you took over your dad's church when you were 18. Is that correct? I was 17 when I took over the so uh, church. So what, what was that like, taking over a church? Like what, what was the makeup of that church in LA like at 17 years old? Yeah, it was a well-respected mid-sized congregation that my father had served for 40 years. Okay. They were not intending on calling a 17-year-old. My father died when I was 16. In June of 89, he passed. Okay. And they went for almost an 18-month search. They didn't vote till uh, November of 1990. And they had the guy. They were so confident that they had the guy that uh, they opened the floor to any nominations of the, or the persons they had heard. And somebody nominated my name from the floor and people laughed and I was elected pastor <laughs> that night. Wow. Yeah. So but, what, what was that like though? Taking over at seven, seven, were you scared? Were you, I mean, that must've been overwhelming. It happened really fast. I started, I preached my first sermon when I was 11 okay. and I was very, very serious that this was the life calling at 11 as much as an 11 year old could be sure of something. Yeah. My father was a respected pastor and many pastors he had been kind to felt that a good way to show the kindness in return was to preach his son. 
Okay. So I'm preaching regularly at 13 at, you know, Sunday school events, yep. youth little things, anything they can invite me to come and put me on a stool on and let me talk about, tell a story of the Bible. They were letting me, but I'm getting a lot of opportunities to preach. And I'm preaching almost weekly by the time I'm 15. Wow. And after his death at 16, I'm preaching every week. Wow. So there is a level of experience and learning and personally during this period, I'm devouring scripture as much as I can. I'm, I'm, I'm a nerd. I, I had a, I would love to have been an athlete. I had asthma that if I was outside for 10 minutes, <laughs> I had an <laughs> asthma attack. <laughs> yeah. So I think all of it was just a divine conspiracy. So at 17, when they call me, I'm just like, no, let me be clear about this. You're going to pay me to preach every week. You know, yeah, like, yeah. What? <laughs> that's a good gig. <laughs> yeah. This is a, <laughs> what? Yeah. Um, now they didn't let me control much of anything else. They let okay. me preach. All right. Which is great wisdom on their part. Yeah. Um, and over those next few years of just preaching, I learned that the power is in the word of God, not in the boardroom. It's good. And it's the thing that began to shape my ministry and shape the direction of the church as I was maturing. So if you've been preaching that long, how many sermons, do you have any sense of how many sermons you've preached? Wow. That's a scary thought because also since I was 16, um, I've had a ex pretty extensive ministry of traveling outside of my own local church as well. Okay. So I don't, I wouldn't even begin to know where to guess. I've done a lot of preaching. I I've was had just, a lot of practice. Uh, John Piper, you know, just, I don't know if you've seen his series of books called the Swans are not silent. Yeah. And uh, so he just published a new one and uh, I was reading in there and uh, he's got a chapter in there on George Whitfield. Mm -hmm. And he said, conservative estimates say that George Whitfield preached on average about a thousand times a week, uh, a year for 30 years straight. Wow. But I got to say, man, you got to be giving him a run for his money. <laughs> you've been doing a lot of preaching for a long time. Yeah. I've been doing a lot of preaching for a long time. And at this stage, on, an, on a regular week, I am teaching and preaching here five times a week in my own home church, wow. not including any slipping out of town I yeah, yeah. to do other events. All right. So then how did you get from L.A. out to Florida at Shiloh, where you're at now? Yeah, I was um, pastoring my dad's church. I was almost at the point of 18 years. Wow. And um, this uh, church in Jacksonville became vacant as a result of the a moral failure of the pastor. Okay. And... There was a group of men they were looking at, and one of them happened to be a friend of mine who uh, kept telling them, you all should go online and hear. We had all of my sermons online in Los Angeles. You ought to go hear them. Mm -hmm. And um, they told me uh, when they reached out to me that they wanted me to come preach, and that was all, that, that they had heard a couple of sermons and they wanted the church to hear me, but it was not to put me in the process. Um, they were looking for somebody older than I was, more educated than I was, faster, uh -huh. a larger church than I did. All of the qualifications they laid out to me, I didn't have. Yeah. And so they weren't interested in me and that was fine because I wasn't interested in them. Yep. But uh, when I preached here, the church was convinced that they had heard their new pastor. So mm -hmm. it became a full court press. And in about three months, the church extended a call for me to be their pastor. So did you go, did you go to seminary or Bible college or any of that? Or I mean, uh, what did you go at like 14? How did you, what, how did we have time you were already <laughs> pastoring? Sure. Um, on the other side of high school, I was in my senior year in high school when I started pastoring. I did a small Bible college. Okay. Um, for a period of time. And 
I did not finish, but I established relationships with professors. Okay. But stuff was coming up. I was talking to these professors. Yeah. I would call them and be like, what do I, tell me the books to read on this. Yeah. And they just kind of mentored me and coached me. Yeah. Through, even though I wasn't in their classes, they just made an investment. Yeah. Um, in me, which was a great, great benefit. Yeah. Um, during another period, I did a short, short time at a master seminary. Okay. And I've done a brief time here in Florida. There's an extension of Gordon Conwell. Um, but I'm, I'm very disappointed that I haven't been as rigorous in completing that phase of my formal preparation. Yeah, you know, um, I, I didn't get to finish either. And I'm, mm -hmm. uh, there's, you know, people have pretty strong opinions about that whole thing. In general, you know, when, when you have, you know, young people come to you that aspire to ministry and they're asking, you know, pastor, do you think we need to go to seminary? What's, what's your answer to that question? Do you think that everybody should, nobody should, some people should, some don't? What do you think about that? No, I really do recommend. I, I would just say, um, by the providence of God, there was a level of discipline and learning and study that I was able to do. Um, I was in a situation for a period where I could not get to school, but I was driving out to Fuller and driving out to other places in the, when I was a teenager, going in their bookstores, looking at what was being assigned in those classes. Yeah. And, and working them. and working through as a teenager, I was working through Walter Kaiser's, you know, toward an exegetical theology, you know, yeah. it's <laughs> so, um, there are things that I think a, a person is, unless you are extremely disciplined, you're not going to learn yep. outside of formal study, languages, systematic theology, um, and church history. And those things are important for ministry. So I do recommend that young people, if they have the opportunity to go and get formal training, yeah. I recommend that you go to a place where you're going to learn the Bible. That's good. Um, and I thoroughly recommend that you pick not just a school, but pick professors. Yeah, that's good. That is, that's what I benefited from. Yeah. Um, in each of my times I've in places, relationships with professors and leaders have been ongoing relationships. Yeah. I have benefited from and continue to learn from. Yeah. Well, tell me a little bit about Shiloh. What's the makeup of your church like? Sure. So, uh, I pastor this young congregation that, uh, this year will mark its 140th birthday. Wow. <laughs> yeah. My We're, church uh, just turned five and I felt like that was a win. So <laughs> I heard that. Yeah. Um, it's a, a downtown church. Okay. We're about six blocks directly down the street on Beaver from First Baptist Jacksonville. Okay. Where uh, Jerry Vines was the pastor. Mac Brunson is the pastor. Um, it's, it's a larger congregation and, um, in a lot of ways, a traditional church, but, um, very open to change in this period. Okay. And, um, over the last summer and fall of last year, our congregation merged with a predominantly white congregation on the other side of town. Wow. So we are now one church in two locations. Okay. Um, and that's just about a month wow. old, and we are still trying to catch our breath, but the Lord is really blessing the, the start of our new work. Yeah, what's it, what's it been like to, uh, 
I mean, it's no secret that racial tensions are um, exponentially high in culture right now. Yeah. And uh, what's it been like to, as a pastor, to walk through a merger with a predominantly white church in the midst? I mean, what have what have been some of the challenges? Has there been any impact on on you guys in the midst of trying to to kind of broker this and work through this right now in this particular culture and time? Sure. The story got a lot of attention because this is uh, while things were going on in Ferguson and New York. There is this story of our merger and. Yeah news and press and the community. And we've had some racially charged issues right here in Jacksonville and in Florida. So this story caught a lot of people's attention. I was very leery. And one producer of a news show just said, look, you know, with all of the bad news we're reporting, we just want to report some good news. Even if this fails, the fact that you are are trying it is newsworthy. Totally. Um, So the story was encouraging to a lot of people. To be honest with you, we haven't had yesterday in our staff meeting, we had the longest conversation about race stuff. <laughs> really? <laughs> then in the whole process, hmm. the bigger issue for us has been that, yeah, we have, we have two 100 plus year old churches. Yeah. You know, it's almost like two, two people in their forties getting married. You know, right. you kind of used to living the way you live. Yeah, man, there's a lot of life that came before. Yes. A lot of life that came before. It's been more of those kinds of things. Yeah. Um, than anything racial. Okay. You know, both sides where persons served in positions, people got territory. Yeah. It's that kind of stuff that we have been um, working through and not much of that. Yeah. But those have been more preva- prevalent than race things. In the middle of one of the meetings while we were proposing this merger, I met with the members out there and they had all kinds of questions. And one old lady just got up and she's like, look, they love Jesus. We love Jesus. They Baptist. We Baptist. They love the Bible. We love the Bible. What's the issue? You know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and in a real sense, that has been the predominant spirit. Yeah. Um, well, that's awesome. Yeah. But there, there, there are those issues, you know, where I think both churches are committed to the word and that's been a help. Yeah. Um, but we, it's, you know, I say, you know, there are churches that have a, early morning traditional service and a later 11 o'clock contemporary service. And it could be one race and them two services couldn't merge, you know? Totally. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know that. It, so it's not always racial things Yeah, as much as it's style, culture, right. church tradition, yeah. and those kinds of things. Are you preaching um, all of that live or do you guys use a video feed? I am preaching the first service that's, that starts at 745 downtown. Okay. I am preaching the service in Orange Park um, at 915 live and coming back downtown to preach at 1045 again live. Wow, busy guy. We're doing a Tuesday night midweek service out there that I teach okay. and a Wednesday night one downtown okay. that I teach. So what's that? I mean... Um, preaching to a predominantly African-American congregation and a predominantly white congregation, that's two very different types of listeners uh, I've noticed in just my own limited experience. What's that like going back and forth between those two? If you have one, this newer congregation that's just become a part of Shiloh that's predominantly, has there been, do you find yourself having to check and adjust the way that you preach or are you pretty much just like, this is the way I preach, you do it the same both places? Yeah, I think I have benefited, number one, 
from the fact that I preach in a lot of different contexts. Yeah, that helps for sure. So I preach in a lot of black churches where I can't get out of a sentence before they say amen. Yeah, that is and, not the case at my church. I have to, yes. I have to ask for it. Sure. Yeah. But, but I also preach in black churches around the country where they're not going to say anything. If they mm. blink, you have done well. Wow. Um, so being in a whole lot of different settings. And then I'm, I'm in schools, seminaries, conferences, conventions. I preach a, a, a lot in different cultural settings. Yep. I think that has aided my preaching. Yeah. That um, for the most part, I think on a week to week basis, I, I want, I want the message to be able to stand anywhere. Yeah, that's good. Um, so, you know, if, um, if I'm in a setting, you know, I'm in orange park and they're looking at me and if I say something very, very good, they may smile. Yeah. Uh, you know, I just take that and keep going. Uh, maybe downtown and I say something good and they jump up, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'll take that, you know, totally. So it's, well, one of the things that, so clearly you're a preacher, you've uh, written a book and host a podcast called On Preaching, and uh, you interview preachers. Preaching is a huge, huge, I mean, would you say it's the the kind of the crux of your ministry really revolves around the preaching ministry? I had this conversation at staff meeting yesterday, and if I had a choice to just go preach, independent. Uh-huh. A pastoral ministry right now wouldn't I wouldn't do it. Wouldn't do it. Um, not right now. I feel. I told the pastors in pastor staff meeting yesterday that I feel like I am a pastor, and that an essential part of I believe primarily my pastoral role is Acts six and four, prayer and the ministry of the word. It's good. So I think I prepare and preach the way I do. Yep. With the sense of my responsibility to shepherd the congregation, nurture the congregation, teach the congregation. Um, it is a primary part of the larger work, I believe, of pastoral ministry that is really big on my heart. That's good. And that's kind of what I want to focus in and talk about. And uh, one of the things I really like about the way that your book is set up is it's very, very practical. Mm-hmm. You, uh, I think Spurgeon was great at that as well in lectures to my students. He deals with very, very practical subject matter. Yeah. And so I kind of want to just talk to you. I think I've got like a hundred questions about preaching that I'd love to, to talk to you about. And sure. like any good preacher, I was kind of trying to wrestle with how to organize this. And so I kind of want to talk about the three phases that the average preacher goes through in a week. So the preparation, the actual preaching, and then recovery. Sure. And uh, so to start with preparation... Um, if you could just share, I, I think the great thing about these kinds of questions is you could have this conversation with a hundred different preachers and it would still be interesting because everybody does it different. And mm-hmm. so when you kind of, you start Monday morning, whenever it is blank page, what is like, what's your process for prepping a sermon? Do you have sequential steps, uh, certain pieces that you're doing on different days? How does that kind of come together for you throughout the week? Sure. I'll, I'll quickly go through the process for me. Okay. There was a day, there was a time, I should say, where certain of these elements of the process were associated with certain days. Yeah. But with the additional responsibilities, changes in my schedule, yeah. I'm, I'm learning to, I'm having to learn different, get it when I can get it. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> but the process does not change for me. Okay. So it begins with prayer. All right. It moves on to just a, 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 
a devotional reading of the text. I'm just kind of reading, reading around it, reading the book, just getting a sense of what is there. Then I am starting with a blank page of what I call observations. Yep. So this is just the really the inductive Bible study method I'm using. Yeah. I start with observations and I just put one and I just put the first thing I see. And that may take me 30 minutes. It may take me three hours, but it may get three pages. It may be 11 pages. But everything I see, everything I think, everything I'm curious about, every connection, every cross-reference that comes to my mind. If I heard you preach this text yeah, and I, I remember your outline, I'm just thinking myself empty. Yeah, that's good. After that, I'm working through different translations. Um, I'm reading through the various translations, um, which also just kind of gives me a cue of what words I need to be studying, especially. Yep. It also, it also gives me a nuance for preaching where, um, you know, uh, I grew up with the King James, blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. Yep. And the living Bible says something like, oh, happy is the person who does not take advice from ungodly people. You know, yeah. it gives, that's a nuance of wording that I may be able to use in preaching. Yeah. What do you preach from? What translation? I do personal memorization, reading, study, and preaching from the English Standard Version. Okay. Um, so then I'm doing word studies. Then I am doing um, some cross-reference stuff. I am then doing context stuff. I'm looking for literary and historical. And then at that point, I'm kind of just reading the commentaries and taking notes yeah. on what catches my attention. And when I'm taking a lot, a lot of notes. Yeah. How many commentaries do you tend to read? Does it vary? I am reading at least 25 every week. Wow. That's a lot of commentary. It's, it is not what I recommend, but here's the other thing. As a teenage preacher, I took the word of God seriously enough that I wanted to get it right. Yeah. And without the formal training, my fallback was I just kept reading to just see the span of argument. Yep. Who's agreeing with who? Who's disagreeing with who? And it has just become a part of my process that more than 20 years later, it's just, I want to read what everybody got to say. Yeah. And I can, I'll, I'll easily concede that at a certain point, there comes a diminishing return where I am saying, yeah, this dude is just quoting that dude who just got that idea from that dude. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. Um, and, but also at the end, I would say my favorite commentators to the end. Okay. Um, but I'm also at a certain point when I feel like I'm not learning a lot anymore from the text. I got a sense of it. I'm also keep reading because there's illustration. There's a, there's a turn of phrase. There's a way this commentator expressed that difficult concept yep. that may help me for preaching. Um, then I just kind of put all of that together in what I call a sermon skeleton. I just kind of put out, you know, this is the structure. These are the objectives, overview of where I want to do what I want to do with this sermon. And then I am writing out a complete manuscript. All right. Still. So you're still writing a manuscript. Most weeks I am writing a full word for word manuscript. All right. But most weeks I don't take anything to the pulpit, but my Bible. Okay. I'm, I want to come back to that because that's an interesting point. But are, do you tend to preach points 
like when you put an outline together, your skeleton, as you call it, do you kind of have like, there's three things we see in the, like, are you a point preacher? I am too. I am an outline preacher. Yeah. It helps. So one of the things when guys ask me about memorization, Mm -hmm. the more structure you have to the sermon, the more it aids memorization. Totally. If you are preaching, A. Lewis Patterson used to call them great commission sermons where he says you call a text and then go into all the world preaching the gospel. You know? yeah, yeah. Um, if you're preaching that kind of sermon, it's hard to memorize that, to remember that. Yeah. But if you have a, a sermon that, first of all, is anchored in the text, you, you're dealing with the text, and it has a sense of structure to it, for me, sometimes memorization is just the process of just remembering the structure. Yeah. Um, so, yes. And I think it, it's an aid for the congregation to put handles yeah. on what you, on what you would say. Yeah, I like mm-hmm. that word. Well, let's talk about then the preaching thing in general. What, do you, what are some things you think that make for a good sermon? So, there are several goals I have for, for the sermon. First of all, I just want to be faithful to the text. Yeah, that's good. Um, I believed that... If you believe 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, you should be doing 2 Timothy 4, 1 and 2. Okay. Um, if, if scripture is God breathed, then yep. if I misinterpret scripture, I misrepresent God. It's good. So it is important that I get the right, get the text right. Yep. And I don't want to be preaching, hovering over, you know, there is this thing where I got a friend that, that, uh, I say, well, how did, how did that guy's sermon go? He said, well, he didn't lie on God, but he lied on the text. You know, yeah. <laughs> it, it's, it's doctrinally true, but it's not what this text is teaching. Yep, yep. You know, I want to be faithful to the me- message of that text, which is rooted for me in authorial intent. Yes. Secondly, I want to be clear in the presentation. I'll admit, I stole this side emphasis just reading and listening to our Kent News. Okay. Who emphasized and this this statement stuck with me. He said, "Clarity is its own style." Yep. Um, and I'm not trying to have a certain style. Or a, I think the more I work at being clear, the more there is a beauty, a sense of creativity rooted in the idea of being clear. And then I just want to be passionate in my preaching. Yeah. And that has to do beyond the direct preparation, just the devotional life yeah. you know, of the preacher, um, how much you are prayed up. Um, I don't want to I don't want to bore people with the Bible and I don't want to act like I am bored by the Bible. Yeah, that's good. Um, I, I want I want, uh, you know, as Martin Lloyd, John, I want it to be logic on fire. Yeah. In, in, in preaching. I like that. So faithful, clear and passionate. Those yes, are the three sir. things you're trying to get to. I love that. Well, let's let's go back to that uh, the note thing. Preachers mm-hmm. have pretty uh, passionate convictions about the type of nun, and I, ironically, it tends to always follow their own personal preference. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so uh, you take you write a full manuscript, but yes. most Sundays you take nothing into the pulpit with you. Right. Is that when you're coaching and uh, shepherding young preachers? Is that is that what you encourage people to do, or or tell me a little bit about why you've gotten to that place? So there are a lot of times in my preaching over the years, I feel like 
I did a lot of hard work in my study. And one of the disadvantages of me reading so much is that sometimes I just have a hard time letting it go. And it's Friday. I'm still wanting to read stuff and I should have turned yeah. to, to crafting. There are times where I have a great idea. I see something. I see the meaning of the text, but it got blurred by sloppy preparation. Okay. And I just feel like I don't want. I don't want what I learned from the text to get lost in the flaw in the fog of unclear preaching. Yeah. And, you know, um, so I, I'm trying to write myself clear. Okay. That's good. And I don't want to be thinking through how I want to say it in the pulpit. So there, there was a period in my ministry where I didn't write and I got away with it enough that I felt like I, if I got an outline, I'm good. If I have a sermon skeleton, you could drag me from my pul- my office to the pulpit and I'm ready to preach. Okay. But I am a better preacher when I have thought through where you're not searching for illustrations. And this is where I feel like I'm a pastor. I'm preaching to the same people every week. Right. I don't want to use the same references on prayer yeah. and the same illustrations on love and become redundant. I hope that people that are listening to me every week for years are feeling a sense of freshness. That's good. Because I'm dealing with the same topic, but in writing, I want to, I got to present the gospel here, but let me, let me find another reference than John three sixteen. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, totally. Yeah. Um, so, so how are you, how are you internalizing that and memorizing that? It's cause you write a full, I feel like my concern with, I, I preach like a broken manuscript with an outline so I've, I've written everything. Like there's not very much that I do that's off the cuff. And usually that ends up with like an apology email or something if I do that. Sure. So, so how, do you, how do you go from my concern with writing a full manuscript and then going up to the pulpit without it is I feel like I'd be trying to remember lines and to get it all right. How do you internalize that and memorize? Because I'm envious, man. To wa- I've watched you preach and you just like go up into the pulpit and throw. It's awesome. But I feel like I'd be really up in my head if I wrote the manuscript ahead of time. So how do you internalize that? Sure. I do think there was a period of time earlier in my ministry where you could have seen me preach live without notes. Uh-huh. And you, you would say, he set that thing to memory. Okay. You know, it, it just, you know, how it looks way. like, you know, like the, the kid in the Sunday school program with the Easter speech, you know, it, yeah, it almost yeah, yeah. feels like he tried to set, you know, yeah, he's trying to yeah. remember yep. what he practiced. Um, I would say the words you are using is what I'm working toward more now. Okay. Um, more internalization than memorization. Okay. So, I want this every sermon. My goal is that is rooted in the text, the chosen text, that there's a clear structure. I'm also writing because um, I have a concern about length. Yeah. So I could just keep going and not be conscious of time. Yeah. But at this stage, um, my, my, my sermon for Sunday is on Romans 12, one and two. Okay. Now in my head, I drove to work this morning thinking, even though I'm probably two days away from beginning to write, but I'm thinking the whole first page needs to be introduction. Page two and three needs to be point one. Page three and four needs to be second point, and then four and five, four and five, second point, and then six is the conclusion. Okay. But this is helping me govern how long this sermon is going to be. 
So I'm, I am writing out what I think, but as I'm writing every hour or so, I'll, I'll print it out and I'm editing down. Yeah. Uh, them two sentences, you don't need both of those. Okay. You just said the same thing and I'm editing that out. Yeah. You use three references there for scripture references, maybe that one. Yeah. Yeah. But kind of every hour or so I'm doing that. I'm printing out, marking down what I wrote. I like this. Mm, maybe that fits over here better. Okay. But having spent that time doing that, there's almost an, an, intern, an internalization process. Yeah. More than a conscious. Now, let me memorize. If I had to write it and this, look back over and say, now let me memorize all of this, that I don't think I could be able to do that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I don't know about you, but I hate long ads in the middle of a good podcast I'm enjoying, so I'm going to keep this short. I am unashamedly committed to getting this podcast into as many ears as possible, and for that, I need your help iTunes is the primary place I drive the podcast and your reviews help increase our visibility there. So do me a favor. If you're enjoying this episode, will you take 60 seconds, log on to iTunes and leave a short review? That's it. Every review makes a huge impact. I promised I'd keep this short. So thanks for your support. And now back to the conversation. All right. So what are your, <clears throat> I'm, I'm assuming you have a, an army of young preachers that you're raising up and for sure that you're influencing with your book and podcast and all of that. What are, what are some of the most common mistakes that you see young preachers making? Sure. Well, one of the things I do, reason I work on manuscripts still is because I want to be an example to the young preachers around me. Yeah. And some of the things, like you said, you end up writing an apology email because you said some stuff off the cuff that you didn't think through. Yeah. I, I want to see that you have at least thought through what you want to say. Um, I don't want you, you know, telling jokes or the force of personality. Don't filibuster in the pulpit. Yeah. Um, so I I think the the cheating of the preparation part is one thing that I just, I am concerned about that I'm constantly pressing the guys around me. Don't cheat. You know, somebody's going to have to pay the price for this sermon. Either you pay the price in the yep. study or they pay the price in the service. Yeah. So don't don't cheat that part. And I feel like the great preachers that you hear that make it look so easy, work hard to make it look easy. Absolutely. And so I'm really encouraging to do the hard work. OK. I think there is also a, a, a sense sometimes where you want to be cute and clever. Yeah. Um. I think this is why I emphasize if you're clear, clear, being clear produces its own style. Yep. Um, so I'm at a stage now where I'm, I'm writing out outlines. Man, I reworked a thing for a long time a couple of weeks ago because I wanted to ditch an alliteration that I had that I liked. Okay. You know, um, <laughs> but I try not to do that too many weeks in a row with alliteration. Just find another way to label it. Okay. Um, Because I'm trying to show the other pastors around me and preachers under me, there's a way to get at this thing without spending all day looking for peas in your, you know. (laughs) The the hours I've lost looking for a pea, man. I don't even want to, I don't even want to tell you about that. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So what do you think about humor in preaching? Because you're a funny guy and I've, I've heard you, your personality comes through your, 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 your preaching is not built on your personality, but it certainly comes through. And so if, uh, if a, if a preacher is, 
you know, has a good sense of humor? Are you, some people are really anti uh, humor. It's for sure a dangerous. I have a friend that says humor is always a risk. You know, it can go really bad on you, but when you counsel guys or what do you think about humor and preaching? Yeah. Um, I feel the same way about say even emotion. Cause I'm, I'm, I'm a passionate guy. Mm-hmm. I'm loud in my preaching. Yep. And my affections are stirred preaching the Bible and talking about Jesus. Yeah. And I don't think anything is wrong with emotion, but there is a line that you must be careful that it doesn't become emotionalism. Yeah. Um, I think the same thing is with humor. Okay. I don't think there's anything wrong with humor. A lot of times they're not trying to tell straight jokes or whatever. Some, some things you just kind of make a statement and keep going kind of deadpan, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, Humor can be um, like uh, the medicine they give you before a surgery, before they yeah. start sticking a needle in you. Yeah. It, it just kind of anesthetizes you to the pain. Yeah. And the next thing you know, there's a needle in yeah. you. Yeah. Um, and it kind of disarms. Uh-huh. So I, I think illustration, humor has a way of, of being effective in communication. Yeah. I think there's a certain vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Um, you must be careful there because we preach Christ and not ourselves. Yeah. But there's a level of vulnerability. There is a prophetic you, you should, that ought to be in preaching. But there is also this we, you know, where there's a sense that this is as much for me as it is for them. Yeah. Um, at times. And I think all of those become means and methods of effective communication if used wisely. Yeah. All right. So I totally agree with all that. I think one thing uh, on the first episode, we had Matt Chandler on and mm-hmm. he had had this great line where he said, if, uh, if the text isn't funny, I probably shouldn't be. Yes. <laughs> and right. I thought that was a really great way to say that. And he, he talked about, you know, preaching through Job and he had used this little bit of humor and it, it kind of pulled the, the weight out of the room that, right. that God intended to actually be there. And so I think, um, yeah, I'm a sucker for a laugh. So I got to be really careful about that. Sure. And I, one of the things I say to the guys is that you want to, you want to be faithful to the truth of the text, but you also want to be faithful to the tone of the text. Love that. Yeah. There, there are some texts that call for joy. Yeah. And then there are some texts that, that call for contrition. Yeah. And you don't want to do anything to get in the way that's right. Of the, of the tone of the text as yeah. much as the truth of the text. Well, there's, uh, I mean, and I think just talking about this, everybody, regardless of whether or not they're a preacher, feels the weight of it. But preaching a good sermon one time is very, very difficult. There's mm-hmm. so many different ways that a sermon can go south. What are some of the most common ways that you see sermons falling apart? <laughs> wow. So I remember one of the first times I took a plane flight. And I was very nervous. And one of the members of my dad's church that drove me said to me, oh, don't worry, Junior. Uh, planes usually crash only on takeoff and landing. If you, when you get up there, you'll be okay. Yeah, yeah. That's and not I, helpful. Yeah. Not, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> that just doubled down on the fear that I already had. Yeah. I think takeoff and landing, how you start. That's good. And how you finish. Is very, very important. 
I am so nervous about that that my introductions are relatively short. Give me a couple of paragraphs and let me get to the text and the outline. Yeah. I don't want to I don't want to build this superstructure of a porch that people are not interested in getting in the house. Yeah. Um I feel like those those I feel like transitions in sermons are you know, most car accidents happen in intersections. Yeah. And people trying to get from one lane to another. Yep. I think the transitional points, because if you don't transition well, um, the sermon can feel disconnected. Yeah. And I feel like you can almost preach as long as you want to if the sermon has purpose, unity, and movement. That's good. They got to feel like this is going somewhere and it's all connected. Yeah. But when you are all over the place and people don't feel a sense of purpose, unity, and movement, they check out. And that can be in 10 minutes. And yeah. it just feels like you are, as I said, filibustering in the pulpit. Yeah. Um, I feel like the way you preach not only teaches scripture, but teaches people how to study scripture. Yeah, totally. So if you handle scripture in a cavalier way for the sake of a sermon idea that you have, you may get away with something clever, you think but you are really hurting your long-term goal of teaching people how to rightly read, understand, and approach the scriptures. Yeah. So the, the exposition part is significant, not as a mere method of methodology, but as a, as a faithful stewardship to the truth of the scriptures. You want to be careful. I feel like, you know, this whole... This is why what my, my friend said, you know, you, you, you didn't lie on Jesus, but you lied on this text. Yeah. You know, and if a person is going to, you may have said something doctrinally true, but if this is not in the text, how are they going to take this to work tomorrow and share this yeah. with someone, totally. you know, where it's just, you just kind of blew over the text as a launching pad yeah. to go where you want it to go. Yeah. That's all really good. Um, I, I want to talk a little bit about recovery. I've, I've had physically demanding jobs, a lot of different kinds of jobs. Um, but I've never had anything that leaves me more tired than preaching. And so I'm, I just wonder how you go about recovering after preaching. Uh, I mean, it sounds like you don't really stop. So I think maybe you've just been exhausted since you were like 14. (laughs) So you might be the wrong guy to ask, but, but, um, Uh, but how do you go about recovering physically, emotionally, spiritually? Are you intentional about that? What's recovery look like for you? Yeah, man, I may be the wrong person to ask. Okay. But I would say, so Sunday afternoons are very, very quiet for me. Yep. Um, I'm going to hang out with my fam. I'm going to take a nap. And my six-year-old daughter is going to drag me to whatever cartoon is out. And then we're going to get, then she's going to talk about me because I slept through the whole cartoon. Yeah, yeah. Um, But those little things help me by Monday to mentally disconnect from the sermon which is very, very important. Um, so there are times when I'm playing catch up. Uh, t- as of this recording tomorrow, I'll be 42 years old. Ah, happy birthday. Thanks, man. So um, I'm not, I'm not old man, but I'm not as young as I used to be. Yeah. So I told the church recently, I go until I feel I need to stop. And it, it, it may be in the middle of a series where I need to take a Sunday. Okay. Um, so I'm, I'm resting. I'm, 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 I learned from those kind of old school traditionalist kind of guys who taught that you ought to have your 
mornings for study, uh-huh. afternoons for meetings, and evening for your family. And yes. I try my best to do that. Yeah, so me that, too. So that I'm going hard early in the morning, but at a certain point in the afternoon, and I'm, I'm, I'm home. Yeah. Um, that's a little harder to do with some of the new additions in our work. That helps me physically. Yeah. And I just, I mean, I'm, I just try to, I try to go to bed on time. Yeah. Um, I've, I'm, I try to force myself to do that because I am fresher in the morning. Me too. Um, and more alert and just more useful to God, I feel. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> early in the morning. Yeah. Then, um, in the afternoon. Um, a lot of Sundays I ride home by myself. I, I, we're going to eat and my, my, my wife and three kids, I meet them there because that ride away from the church is just, man, you, I, you've poured your soul out. Totally. Um, and I just, I just need that 15 minutes to the restaurant yeah. to just think and pray cry, whatever, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. so that when I get with my family, um, they have my attention. Yeah. Um, but I feel like at this stage, I need to be more intentional about what I do after the sermon than as, as I am before the sermon. That's good. Um, because that whole recovery process is very, very important spiritually, physically, and emotionally, and also you just kind of, I mean, you can't get ready for the next one if you're still living in the hangover of the last one. Totally, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So um, anybody that's going to preach is going to have to learn how to battle um, discouragement, uh, for sure, and then fatigue, but then also you got to figure out how you're going to deal with criticism. Um, criticism's going to come, and so I, I, you've been preaching for, you're like going to be 42 in human years, but you're like 106 in preacher years. Yeah. <laughs> so, so how do you deal with criticism? Cause you must get some. I remember man, in my early teens, when I really began to take the Bible very seriously and I just was digging into it. And I remember the first little sermon that I preached and I, it's, I, I had maybe 13, 14 and I really worked hard on this thing. I remember the sermons out of John 12. Hmm. Uh, I called it Lazarus also, where the religious leaders are plotting to kill Jesus. And then they said uh, that we needed to kill Lazarus also, whom he had raised from the dead. Yeah. Um, Because to stop the movement, you not only needed to get Jesus, but Lazarus, who was a living testimony of the difference Jesus could make. That's right. I had worked hard on that thing. And all the thing I heard was that I preached too long. (laughs) I was just like, what? Yeah. <laughs> and I sat up that whole night and cried. Oh man. And my father walked through the front room, headed to the kitchen. He saw me in there. He asked me what the matter was. I told him, he said, well, I'm going to get something to drink and go to bed. I have an early day tomorrow. I'm not going to sit up with you. I'll just tell you that if you can keep from preaching, do it, you know, and then he went back to bed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks dad. Yeah. That might've been, that might've been a daddy fail. <laughs> And it took me years to get it, yeah. you know, the, um, what he meant there. Um, but that was an early, early experience for me. That that um, you have to be faithful to the call, but there is no guarantee of how people are going to respond. Yeah. Um, and there will be criticism. There will be 
rejection. There will be um, hurt, but you must remember who you are doing it for. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you also need to be careful that, about the fact that I think God has to find creative ways to sanctify preachers. Okay. And criticism is one of them. And I think criticism is one of them. And I've had some strange things to happen yeah. lately. You know, some belittling things and critical things. And the staff are like, how you feel about that? And I said, I just think these days God is finding creative ways to keep me humble, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and there are a lot of encouragement I get. There's a level of attention that I get. Um, and I think there are things God does to balance that off. Yeah. To keep us humble, to keep us prayerful, to keep us dependent. Because you can, you know, uh, Charles Swindoll says that the uh, most dangerous thing about ministry is that you can do it. You yeah, know, that's good. And you, you, you get to this sense where you, you, you think you can do it. And you start neglecting prayer. Yeah. And you start taking credit for things that you did not do. Yeah. Um, and I think God uses criticism. I think I think I expect every 18 months or so, there's going to be some challenge to my leadership. I mean, at this stage, I've done this long enough that I just kind of expect it. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like it is a part of God's sanctifying process in my own life so this is a way i'm learning to to look at it also i'm pretty good man i'm pretty good at getting in that pulpit and passing out medicine to hurting people yeah yeah and every now and then god puts us in situations where we are forced to take that medicine that's good of criticism misunderstanding people that you trust um that betray you people that you invested in that go awry um people who don't know you, but who question your motivations. Um, those things go with the territory. And then you read second Corinthians chapter 11 and then you, you know, Paul says, anybody's tried to stone you lately, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You you're know, having I mean, a good day. If yeah, nobody's go, tried to stone you, you're having a good day. I go preach, you know, like I said, Paul goes, you know, Paul, Paul preach and they run him out of town. I go preach. They want to get me a stake, you know, yeah, what, yeah. What? Yeah. <laughs> the, you know, it, it's, it's not as bad as it seems. Yeah. Um, so, but also, and you have to work to take, not to take those things personally. Yeah. I say it this way very quickly, that the fruit of the spirit is cultivated in the soil of difficult relationships. Oh, that's good, man. That's yeah. A great way to say it. God teaches us love by, I think, making us deal with mean people. He teaches us patience by forcing us to deal with people that get on our last nerve. You know, yeah. I think the fruit of the spirit is cultivated in the soil of difficult relationships. That's good, man. Well, I could keep asking you questions all day, but one of the things I do for in the room is I put out on social media who I'm going to be talking to and sure. uh, ask if anybody has questions. So had a few questions come in, especially on Facebook. So um, let's see where to start. Uh, Joe Thorne, you know, Joe Thorne by any chance? I do. Okay. Well, he asked, what kind of razor do you use to shave your head? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even making that up. He's got two questions, but the first was that. Yeah, I lose that Gillette five blade. All right. That's the good yeah. one. All right. Yeah, it's a good one. Well, his other question, I thought this was a great question, is he said, um, if today was the last day of your life or the last sermon you'd ever preach, what text would you choose? Wow. 
That's a tough one. It's a very, very tough one. I'd probably choose whatever I'm working on right now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm working this week on Romans 12 and 1 and 2, and I don't even know if there's another text in the world because that's That's the only world. one I'm thinking on. Yeah. yeah, that's good. But but I would if I if I could control that, I would want to select a text that I felt clearly presents the person and work of Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's a good answer. Yeah. Um, a guy named Alexander or Alex uh, Gonzalez, he said, "Why do you almost always wear a black suit and white shirt?" <laughs> is, is there a reason for that, or those are just your favorite colors? Um, well, I tease that I will stop wearing black when they make a darker color. That's uh, a, <laughs> <laughs> I like, that. um, so I was a 17 year old pastor Yep. and I pastored some people who changed my diaper, who had spanked me five feet from the place where I stood to preach. Wow. Yes. Um, and I just felt like I had to work to be taken seriously. Hmm. And so I dressed very conservatively. Okay. That's how it started. Okay. Um, secondly, just in my culture, I, I feel like there is a, I have a concern for young preachers. Okay. Who are caught up in materialism mm-hmm. and the celebrityism and the showiness. Yeah. And, I, I really think this is my quiet protest. Okay, I like that. You know, I don't want to go to the pulpit dressed like a pimp or a celebrity or a GQ model. Yeah. I just, I want, I want it to, I want there to be a seriousness about my, uh, someone asked me this recently and I said, um, who influenced me to dress this way in the pulpit all the time? And I said, uh, Mike Tyson. Yeah. You know, I was a Mike Tyson fan. He'd come to the ring black trunks, black shoes, no robe, no socks. And man, the opponent lost just watching that cat walk to the ring. Yeah. He came to the ring and his appearance, his demeanor all indicated I came here for business. Yeah. And I want that to be the sense when I come to the pulpit. Hmm. That I'm here on business. That's um, awesome. And yeah, no no special spiritual reason outside of that. No, Plus that's a- also as a pastor that travels and all that kind of stuff, it just makes it very easy that I don't have to decide what I'm going to wear. <laughs> totally, man. The, the only time I ever really envy Presbyterian pastors is they don't have to think about what they're going to wear if they just throw a robe on. Who cares? I'm yeah, preaching right. shorts and a t-shirt every week if I wore a robe. I heard that. I know that's right. All right. Uh, Joe Legalbo asks, I think this is an interesting question. How do you recognize the leading of the Holy Spirit as you're preaching? Obviously, the Holy Spirit guides us in preparation and writing and all of that. But, um, you know, we've all had that that time where we felt prompted in a different direction or something that was unplanned. So how do you recognize that? Yeah. I don't know if I am in a position to codify that. Okay. But I am sensitive to that. Okay. So I am trying in a sense to, first of all, exegete the congregation. This is one of the reasons why I prefer not notes. I want to kind of get a sense of the room. Yeah. Sometimes there's nothing as deep than just watching facial expressions. Yep. Sometimes you can see they're not getting it. Yep. Um, and also, I, I do want to be dependent and humble enough to follow the Spirit's leading in the sermon. So what I pray privately, sometimes I pray publicly. 
is that the Lord would edit out what he wants out of the sermon and edit in what he wants in. Yeah. There are things that I have prepared that are not what I should say. And I think the, the Holy Spirit needs freedom to edit that out. There are times where I felt like I've, I've spent 30 hours on a sermon and standing there, something in that text, a connection that I didn't think of in all those hours come to me. Yeah. Um, I think there are points of application, which is not my strong point, okay. which is another reason why I write. I need to write out my application because I just feel like I'm better at explaining stuff. Yeah. So I'm, you know, and so I'm explaining and Paul said, pray here. And I could be like, and that's what you ought to do. And then go to the next verse. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, um, there are moments and I feel like Sunday morning was a moment where I just threw in two sentences. I, I made a passing reference to a cultural thing, um, a, a reference, which I don't always do to a to the larger issue about uh, homosexuality in our culture. Those were not planned in the sermon. Uh-huh. but I just sensed this was a place to say that it fit in the flow of, of the text and the, it was a natural application of something I was saying and it had impact. Yeah. And I, I, I take that as a, a moment where there was a, it was a off script moment. That was the leading of the Holy spirit. Um, there are things that come to my mind, you know, my, your mind, you know, the, you can be distracted, pulled in a bunch of different di- directions. I think preparing well helps guard you from a lot of folly. Yep. <laughs> you know, I think the better you prepare, um, you know, the musicians around here, you know, can sit down and riff and play, but it's because they've sat down and mastered the scales. That's right. And my problem, I never learned. Cause I didn't want to sit down and learn the scales. I just want to sit down and be able to play. Yeah. Um, there has to be the discipline before there's the freedom. That's good. And then I don't, I think, I think you are more prepared to have those moments where to, to, of the freedom of the spirit after you have disciplined yourself to make sure you understand the boundaries of what this text is and is not saying. Yeah. Yep. Well, that is a great, great place to conclude. I think HB, uh, I've learned a ton. This has, I think, been my favorite conversation so far, man. So thanks so much for your, for your, your input and your ministry, man. I'm really, really thankful for you. Man, I appreciate this time with you. Thanks, man. My favorite characteristic in a preacher is not their passion, their humor, or their style. My favorite characteristic in a preacher is a sincere care to be faithful to God's word. HB has that, as well as an immense amount of passion, humor, and style. He's a gift to the church, and if you're a preacher, make sure you check out his book, On Preaching. And that's it for this episode, but don't forget you can connect with me on Twitter and Instagram at, at Ryan Hughley, and also on my blog at ryanhugley.com. That's H-U-G-U-L-E-Y. We'll be back next week with episode number 17 of my conversation with Matt Brown. He's an evangelist and the author of a new book called Awakening. Until then, it's an honor to learn with you. I love you, and thanks for listening. Thank you.